आप सबका स्वागत करता हूं मुझे बड़ी प्रसन्नता है कि मैं राहुल जी के साथ ये आपके सामने वक्तव्य दे रहा हूं एक बहुत ही महत्वपूर्ण विषय पर कि किस प्रकार से मूर्ति पूजा का प्रारंभ देश में होता है और वैदिक देवी देवताओं की परिकल्पना और यज्ञ तो था ही लेकिन किस प्रकार से अब मूर्ति उनकी बनती है सो आई बिगिन विद ए मंगलाचरण हैप्पी बिगिनिंग ए मंगल बिगिनिंग एंड आई कोट फ्रॉम आचार्य अभिनव गुप्त एंड आई विल डू दैट आई विल स्टार्ट द मंगलाचरण यस्तन्मयादय संवदन क्रमेण द्राक्षिशक्तिगण भूमि विभाग भागी हर्षोल्लसत पर विकार जुषह करोति वंदे तमाम तम हमेन्दुकलावतंस तो ये भगवान शंकर की उपासना है वी आर थिंकिंग ऑफ शिव हु क्रिएट्स दिस होल वर्ल्ड who creates the male part the female part and who provides us immense pleasure and joy in creating that whole drama of this world now why have i chosen this subject origin of murti puja you see since 19th century in india we have been uh, kind of stuck in a debate the debate is this that the vedas that is the samhitas did not have at the time of yagya and at the time of that particular way of worship or upasana they did not have what has been called by the west as idol worship or murti puja as we call it in hindi now or as we used to call it once upon a time making a vigraha vigraha is a body so worshiping the divine in a body body means body of all kinds so this debate has been there since 19th century now of course india is a land in which people have worshiped the divine in various ways and as part of various darshanas or various philosophical systems some have worshiped through yagya some have worshiped through following the message of certain philosophical leaders there is a verse in written around uh, 12th century and that verse talks about the different systems which were used in india by different people and the verse goes on like this it's very important yam shaiva samupasate shiv iti yam shaiva samupasate shiv iti brahmeti vedantino bauddha buddha इति प्रमाण पटव करतेति नैयाय कहा अरहन नित्यथ जैन शासन रतो 
अरहन नित्यथ जैन शासन रतो कर्मेति मेमाम सका सोयम वो विदधात वांछित फलम त्रैलोक्यनाथो हरि सो द मीनिंग ऑफ दिस वर्स इज दैट द लॉर्ड ऑफ दिस थ्री वर्ल्ड त्रैलोक्यनाथ हु इज आल्सो कॉल्ड हरि त्रैलोक्यनाथो हरि आपको वांछित फल दे ही मे फुलफिल ऑल योर डिजायर्स नाउ हु इज दिस हरि he says that hari is the same as shiva the shaivas call him shiva yam shaiva samupasate shivaiti and the brahmavadis call him brahma brahmeti vedantino the bodhas call him buddha hari is called buddha by the bodhas or followers of buddha bodha iti pramana patava and those who are very expert in logic they call him karta the logicians call him karta the doer karte ti nayayaka arahan nityath jain shasana rato those who follow the discipline of jain munis they call him arahan so arahan is hari buddha is hari Brahma is a hari, Shiva is a hari. Arahan nityath jain shasana rato, karameti mimamsaka. And the followers of mimamsak darshan, the followers of yagya, the Vaidik yagya, they call him karma or they call him yagya. Yagya itself is the divine. Karameti mimamsaka. Soyam vo. विदधातु वांचित फलम त्रैलोक्यनाथो हरि सो दिस हरि मे गिव फुलफिल ऑल योर डिजायर्स एंड दिस हरि इज बुद्ध दिस हरि इज कर्म एंड सो ऑन व्हिच आई एक्सप्लेन सो इन इंडिया देयर हैज बीन दिस थॉट दैट द डिवाइन मैनिफेस्ट्स इटसेल्फ इन डिफरेंट वेज टू डिफरेंट पीपल एंड दे परस्यू डिफरेंट काइंड्स ऑफ अप्रोचेस now this was the indian way till 19th century when the british came and became our rulers especially after 1857 when victoria malka victoria she became the empress of india and india became the jewel in the british crown at that time there was a heavy influence of european thought and particularly christianity and so under the impact of the intimidation of monotheism so many indians in the 19th century or as a matter of fact even towards the end of the 18th century they started feeling guilty about worship of murtis about worship of idols because the christians were constantly castigating it calling it devil worship calling it not the right way to god so there were various systems in india which reacted to this and they said oh we also follow monotheism we also worship formless god so somebody like dayanand saraswati said there is no murti in the vedas so worship of yagya 
is the true system. There is no other system which is true. Then, other than the Arya Samajis, the Brahmo Samajis said, no, Brahmo is the real reality. Upanishads are the true Granthas. They are the real Granthas. The rest are not so real. But Upanishads are the best. Then there were Dev Samajis. Then there were other people who were all influenced and intimidated by Christianity. And people started saying in India that this particular approach is the best. That worshipping God without form is the best. That Nirgun is higher than Sagun. Now all this begins in the 19th century because Hindus got so badly intimidated that Christianity made them guilty of so many of their systems. For all these thousands of years, right since the Vedic times, they had been worshipping in diversity. Ruchinam vaichitryat riju kutila nana patha jusham nirnam eko gamyaha. As Pushpadanta said in his poetry, that there are various paths, straight and a little diverse, but people arrive at the same goal by diverse modes of worship. So we were very proudly believing that. Tulsidas said, Aguna saguna nahi kachubheda. We were very much reconciled to the diversity of our paths. But in the 19th century, this came. Now with this debate, people started debating, when did Murti Puja arise? Because in Veda, there is no Murti Puja. There is no worship of the Devata in a form of stone or a form of wood or any other kind of what is called Vigraha or body, or in Greek it was called idolon, from which you have the English word idol, and from which you have the Greek word ikona, or ikona, which means the icon. So when did icon arise? And in all this questioning, and in all this investigation, there was this guilt feeling that the pure times were the Vedic times, when we worshipped one God and all devatas are equally actually one God and we somehow slided down into worship of the murti. So people started thinking about this. Now in my talk, I want to make it very clear that emergence of murti puja or vigraha or worship of Vigraha should not be considered at all as something inferior or as a lower mode of worship. Now, this is a very commonplace thinking in modern India. And so many of our great uh, modern stalwarts, especially the Advaitvadis, they, not all of them, but quite a few of them, tend to fall into this kind of a logic that Murti Puja, Saguna worship is a lower form or that it is a form which is 
only meant to lead you to the higher level. Now, this in itself is not according to tradition. Because in the Indian system, the creator, in all Indian philosophy, the creator and the creation are not two. The creation is an attribute, a manifestation, and as much real as the creator. So it is not like the Christian God who created the world and the world was something different from him. And the world eventually also ended up having a devil who was constantly fighting or was in constant opposition to God. In the Indian system, creation or srishti is not different from srishta. Prakriti is not different from purusha. They are together. As Kalidas said, Vagartha viva sampriktau. They, like word and its meaning, the two are inseparable. They manifest as two, but actually they are one. So, Murti Puja or Vigraha worship was just another diversity. Just another choice which emerged from the Vedic worship. Now, anybody will tell you that in the Vedic Samhitas, in the Rig Samhita, which is the, which is the main Samhita, the main textual body, there are so many gods like Indra, Pushan, Usha, uh, etc etc so many of them and they all have certain attributes they are all described as people they are all described as having shape size color preferences food which they prefer etc etc so they are described as having their so-called bodies as something which is not without form they are not formless. The Vedic Devatas have a form. I am not going into this debate that this form was later on imposed or this is a lower form. You see, all this is just Christian intimidation. In Indian thought, the form, the matter is part of creation. It is part of Prakriti. And it is as divine as the Purush or the creator. So all the Devatas, they have a shape and a size. And they are all holy. Pavakana Saraswati. So Saraswati also has an attribute. She is also called Indrani. Pahwa Utaye. So she is also called Indrani. She is also a river. A real flowing river. She is also a Devi. So all these things are together. They are not inseparable. They are not higher or lower. Similarly, the Devatas have a huge diversity. And these Devatas were given offerings in fire. And it was through the mouth of fire that they accepted 
the offerings. Now, how is it that the transition takes place? Where do we find an evidence of this? I'm not going into various theories that keep cropping up or that there have been so many theories as to why uh, Murti Puja was invented. <laughs> I'm quote unquote invented, no. I am not going into all those theories. I am going to give you an evidence, a praman, an actual account of the transition that took place. And how did this transition took place? And is there any textual evidence for this? Now we know very well that when this great transition took place, then there were so many texts called the Agamas, which described as to how one should perform worship. But that is the later stage. I am going to talk to you about the actual conception and how things happen. Now, this is something which is to be found in the Natya Shastra. In the fourth chapter of the Natya Shastra, we have an account of how this transition took place. At this point, let me very briefly tell you what is the relationship of Natya Shastra to the Vedas. Now it is said that the Natya Shastra was the method of providing the message of the Vedas to the common people. Or not just the message, but the real knowledge, the full complete knowledge of the Vedas had to be given to the common man, to the man and the woman and the child. Yes, the children also, who could not be formally educated through the long process of learning the Vedas, understanding the mantras, understanding the deep knowledge behind that. So Natya Shastra, on the request of Indra, was given to Bharat Muni by Brahma. How did this happen? The story goes that Indra said that, look, we have a lot of ignorance in this world now. So kindly provide me with a plaything, a sport or something to entertain me. The word is kridaniya, kridaniya kamichamo, yat shravyam chadrishyam bhavet. I need some plaything. And which should also give the message of the Vedas to the common people, to everybody, those who do not have an opportunity to go for higher education. So Brahma said, okay, fine, I'm going to give you Natya Veda. And this would be the fifth Veda, which would contain all the knowledge, all the truth and all the depth of understanding about creation and divine and creator. Everything would be provided to you and how to live, how not to live. All methods of good life and dharma 
would be provided to you through this Natya Ved. And this Natya Ved in practice is an art of drama, which is unique because unlike all other arts, in drama, you see something and you hear something at the same time. In painting, you only see. In music, you only hear. In sculpture, you only hear, see and maybe touch. But in theater, you see and hear. So it was a unique uh, art and it had the capacity to provide all the dharmic knowledge of the Vedas. That's why it was called the fifth Veda. Now, this knowledge was given. Theater was started. Plays were invented. And some plays were done by Bharat Muni in the beginning, particularly the story of Amrit Manthan. That is when there was churning of the ocean and in which Amrita or nectar emerged and in which poison also emerged. And after an enactment was done of this, and after this enactment was appreciated by different people and the gods as well, the creator of Natya Brahma and the producer of Natya Bharat Muni, they all went to Shiva, Bhagavan Shankar, to show their achievement. Now it is here that the topic on which I am addressing you begins. So when they had made a performance before Shiva and Shiva had appreciated this performance, then Shiva after congratulating both Bharat Muni and uh, Brahma, he said, look, there is something which is missing. You have performed the play, you have performed a prolegomena or what is called the Purvaranga. Prolegomena is called Purvaranga in Sanskrit and in the technical term of theatre. In this Purvarang, there is a lack of something called dance or nritta. Nritta is something which is lacking here. It is something which is extremely significant and attractive. And it is expression of great joy. And it is immortal. And Shiva says, Mayapidam smritam nrittam Sandhyakaleshu nrityata Nana karan samyuktaira Angharaira vibhushitam So Shiva says that, look, I also at the evening hour remembered that there was something called dance or dancing. And I started dancing. Now when he uses the word remembered, smritam, maya api idam smritam, smritam, then 
by the word smritam it indicates i remember you remember something which has already existed so dance is immortal it is as old as creation and shiva remembers and started dancing and he danced which had all kinds of embellishments called karana and angahara etc etc and he said that look you should put this in the purvaranga purvaranga means prologue not prologue but a prolegomena or an introduction to main play that before the main play the main theatrical expression starts on the stage there is something done in order to calm and soothe the minds of the audience so that they get focused on what is happening on the stage that is called purvaranga and shiva told bharat muni that yes bharat muni you have performed a purvaranga also but it does not have dance so now please introduce dance and i am going to call my disciple tandu who is going to show you what is nritta or what is dance which has all kinds of karanas and angaharas etc in it very significant karanas are 108 postures which were for hundreds of years resculpted in various temples of india and even outside india in cambodia etc so they were considered as divine and he said shiva said that tandu will show you all what this nritta is so he calls tandu he says that achakshu bharataya angahar prayoga he says teach him dance and all this dances taught by tandu now when shiva was dancing parvati was also inspired to join him and what she danced was a soft version of what shiva was dancing and that was called lasya now all this was done this dance this nritta not nritya nritya is a later form which means that when dance has an element of abhinaya or enactment of a character in it then it is called nritya but this is nritta that is dancing without portrayal of a character dancing out of the sheer joy of moving your body that is nritta nrittam and this is introduced as an essential item or rather as an essential force in the purvarang by shiva so what is now for our purpose today the purpose of recalling the origin of murti puja so important in dance you see this dance 
had various movements of the body it has movements of the legs it has movements of the of the belly it has movements of the uh, neck and these movements were called rechaka it had movements of several kinds of postures that the body takes that legs are placed in a manner and hands are placed in a manner and different movements are done hands are held with certain uh, ways which talk about an expression now all this is done in order to make dance very significant but other than these rechakas angaharas and karanas karanas which become angaharas there was something else which had to be done and this thing was called pindi bandhas now i'm sure you have understood very clearly that various movements of the bodies in dance are seen by people as movements of the parts of the body that is movements of the hand movement of the feet holding feet and hand in certain combination in various ways in order to create great diversity so that is all dance itself but here something else is introduced and what is that that is called pindi bandhas so pindi bandhas were also taught by two bharat muni and what are those pindi bandhas while dancing the dancer took certain postures pindi bandhans tato drishtva nandi bhadra mukha ganah chakruste naam pindi naam bandham asam salakshanam now while the dance was being performed and all these movements of hand and feet were done there was something else being done and that was called pindi bandhas and what was the pindi bandhas which the disciples of shiva the nandi and bhadramukha and the other ganas saw what is this pindi bandha and what is the meaning of pindi bandha now pind means the body so a lump or a body or a segregation of a matter or a segregation of houses is called pind the word is still in use in very common use also in punjabi you call a village a pind okay because it is a collection of something so here it is a collection of what if this pindi is getting into a combination with what other things there is a bandha of what else it is actually 
certain attributes and positions and postures of certain devatas which form the pindi bandhas in other words when a particular devata let us say indra when indra is made to descend into your body when indra with his attributes like a bright face like carrying the weapon called vajra like riding the elephant white elephant called aravat when a dancer is able to show through gestures through the bodily postures the shape the quality of indra then that is called the pindi of indra i hope i am clear so it is through the human body the dancing body that first of all there is a descent or you may even use the word incarnation because incarnation means getting into the body becoming the body and sarcosis so when a particular devata when a particular god god goddess in sanskrit we only use the word devata for both when a particular god or goddess is given a shape by a dancer then that is called pindi bandha so in this dance which was taught to bharat muni by tandu at the instance of shiva apart from the things that we know the bodily movements angaharas etc all these things apart from that what is important here is the idea of pindi bandha the pindi of the devata becomes enacted right now once you have brought in the pindi of the vedic devatas then what have you done from the devatas which through the mantras were described to you in words only in the mantras there was a verbal picture of the devatas now that verbal picture of the devatas is given shape by the dancer in the human body by the pin, a formation of pindi bandhas so if there is the pindi of chandika then that pindi called singa vahini of the chandika will depict the chandika the devi who would be riding on the singha who would be carrying different kinds of weapons who would have a face a very well lit full of light face 
as is appropriate for a goddess. If you are depicting Indra, then Indra would be depicted along with his Ayudh Vajra and his Vahan or vehicle, which is Garuna. If you want to depict Vishnu, then you would enact a pindi called Takshi and Vishnu would be depicted there through various weapons and Vishnu also, as you know, rides on the Garuna. Indra rides on Aravad, the elephant. Brahma, if you want to depict, then Brahma is shown as seated in the lotus. Similarly, Kamadev is shown as riding or standing on a fish or jhasha. So, all these were depicted as part of dance. And they were depicted in the Purvaranga. Now, the Natshas goes on to describe in detail as to what should be the appropriate place in which these pindis were to be done. It goes on to describe as to who will do it, at what time it would do it, how many female dancers would enact this, what would be their number, in what sequence they would do it. All this is a very complicated system which is explained. All this was done as part of certain songs. These songs were called Dhruva songs. Now here I want to put before you the Vedic connection. I mean, why do I say that these things have a Vedic origin? Somebody can just come around and say, well, well, these are very late developments. They are to be found in Puranas only because these gods and goddesses are mentioned there. So why do you say that the Natya Shastra has a Vedic connection? It could be a very late development in the field of theater. And uh, why should we believe that it is connected to the Vedic period? Now, the reason I want to draw your attention to the Vedic connection is this. You see, in the Vedic times, when Yajna was performed, and you know, Yajna was a very elaborate thing. Then, at moments or for certain periods of time, like an hour or two or three or whatever was the timetable, when the yagya stopped for a while, there were many other activities going on. And one of the major activity at that time was singing of certain songs which were called dhruvas. Now these dhruvas were sung and they were of two categories called Saptarupa Gitakas. And there were seven types of Saptarupa Gitakas. Mandarak, 
अपरांत उल्लोप्य प्रकरी ओवेणक रोविंदक एंड उत्तर नाउ दीज वर सॉन्ग्स विच वर संग बाय ए स्पेशल क्लास ऑफ पीपल एंड वेरी ऑफन दीज पीपल हैड एन एसोसिएशन विद द वर्शिप ऑफ शिव हु इज द वैदिक रुद्र ऑल्सो these songs were sung and these songs were sung as part of the vedic ritual they were not exact parts of the yagya not part of samgan they were not part of rig part or yajur part but they were performed along with the yagya and they were essential they had to be performed these were the seven types of geetakas then there were other seven types of geetas called chandak asarit vardhamanak panik rik gatha and sam this is different from the sam gaan the seven note sam gaan so these seven geetakas are very clearly mentioned in the natya shastra as part of the purvarang all of them as a matter of fact all 14 of them have a place in the natya shastra and it shows that purvarang the precursor to the actual performance was an essential part of performance of drama and it was an essential ritual part a spiritual part and it is in this spiritual part that the pindi bandhas are performed so the natyashastra in the fourth chapter gives a very clear account as to how when the asarit geeta or the vardhamanak geeta is sung then it is at that time the pindi bandhas are performed they were of course performed when other geetas were also held to sum up what i am trying to draw your attention to is this that in the vedic tradition along with the yagya proper there was singing of these songs called dhruvas and dhruvas were very essential in various ways to the natya shastra and to all performing traditions they were very essential throughout the history of music and dance in india until 4 or 500 years ago we also had the bridge bhasha dhruvapad so this dhruva singing of dhruvas from very ancient times to the modern times has continued as a sacred activity coming back to what was done at the time of vedic ritual these geetas were sung and these geetas the seven geetakas and the seven geetas the dhruvas they found a place in theater in which the pindi bandhas were performed so formation of pindi bandha is actually formation of the vigraha the icon 
in the human body. So what you find is that the Vedic Devata who was worshipped in the Yajna as only Vakamurti, as something described through mantras and who was given all kinds of offerings, treated as a force, as a person, but described only through words, is now given a shape and size or an icon or a vigraha. Vigraha means a body. The, the idol of the temp, in a temple is also called vigraha. It is given a vigraha on the stage. And this is the earliest record of the transition that actually happened. Now this is part of the Natya Shastra. Natya Shastra is a very ancient text. The present recensions of Natya Shastra that we find, they easily date back to 5th century BC. And we know that there were even earlier editions of this Natya Shastra, which were twice as big and they were much, much older. The text of Natya Shastra shows extreme closeness with all Vedic rituals and how theatre was part of the later development of Vedic activity, in which you find emergence of Pindi Bandhas, and Pindi Bandha is on stage the incarnation of Devata. Now, once this has happened on stage, you can create the same vigraha in any other material. You can do it in wood, you can do it in stone, you can do it in mud, you can do it in whatever material you find. And it is this evidence which I think is most crucial to the development of Murti Puja in India. And it is here that we find a textual recording of it. So thank you very much. I am a student of journalism and I really love history also. So I wanted to ask a doubt, um, sir, yes. may I? Yes. Uh, uh, you said that uh, uh, when the through the Natya Shastra they started this mritam with which the depictions of gods and goddesses started. You know, sir. Yeah. So do you think that it is because of that necessity to depict uh, the gods or goddesses in physical forms arose which led to the Murti Pujam? I didn't understand that connection. Yes, yes, that's it. You see, because the gods were sacred because they were already being worshipped in the Vedic ritual, there was a diversity created to make them more visible, approachable and to see their manifestation as a physical body, something which we can see, something which we can worship, something which we can keep something for which we can make a temple. 
thank you so much for the beautiful explanation. It was a great experience. Uh, I I am a musician uh, staying in the city of Nashik. Very good. And I would like to know about uh, the, the Drupad Gan that we have today. Yeah. Uh, is is it a descendant of the Samagana or the Dhruva Dhruva songs uh, that you mentioned earlier? Uh, I mean, uh, where where does it take its precedence well, from? Well, very vaguely, one could say yes. It is a development from that tradition because the word Dhruva means something which is fixed, something which is composed. so where certain words are fixed that is a, a literary composition is made available to us and then along with those words notes and beats swara and tal is also fixed so you make what now we call a bandish a bandish of dhrupa the bandish of khayal so it is in that sense that they had the bridge bhasha dhrupad but this is the old tradition of creating a dhruva pad or a dhruva and this originates in the gitakas the two gitakas two categories of gitakas which i described rovindak madrak etc right from the ancient times which was sung at the time of vedic yajna and which have a very old heritage it is a beautiful exposition of a completely new subject for me <laughs> so now did can we then assume that uh, natya shastra preceded murti puja could it be something like that certainly natya shastra is older than ramayan natya shastra is older than mahabharat i have written extensively on it because uh the text of ramayan and mahabharat they all borrow technical terms which are from natya shastra now it cannot be the other way around no shastra is going to borrow technical terms from a kavya or from a itihas or puran the poets don't invent musical terms like marg or asarit or dhruva or shamya ha tantri murchana these are very technical words and you find them in both ramayan and mahabharat so if you find these technical terms in ramayan and mahabharat then obviously ramayan and mahabharat have taken these technical terms from a particular work on theater and music which is none other than natya shastra which may not be exactly the present day natya shastra but a precursor of the present day natya shastra which in our tradition is acknowledged that before this present day natya shastra of bharat muni there was a natya shastra of vriddha bharat elder bharat dada bharat so tradition knows that so i have argued i have a book called dramatic concepts greek and indian 
you can get it on from Amazon. In this, I have given detailed explanations about how uh, Natya Shastra is much older than Ramayana and Mahabharata. The scholars, uh, you know, have not delved into, they have uh, just followed some Western scholars who presume that theater cannot be before Greek uh, emergence of 5th century BC. So because the Westerners were writing all the time that theater came into existence in Greece, so it came into existence in India after the Greeks. So we carry on that kind of a uh, argument in the back of the mind and great uh, scholars like Raghavan and Kapila, Vatsya, and they have all placed uh, Natshast in 2nd century AD after the uh, arrival of Alexander in India, which is, which is not true, which is not right. I have a question, uh, Dr. Gupta. I have heard that uh, swaras have uh, are, are correspondent to our chakras. They have some correlation, and so does the form of the deity, and thus they can be used for healing. Yes, this is a science which developed at a later stage. Uh, this is not uh, the the Shastra doesn't look into it. Because it's a very technical scientific work. But when you develop it science in one area, that is the science of music, then you combine it with the science of another area, which is the Yoga Shastra of the Ashta Chakra. You know, the various kinds of chakra from Swadeshthana, Manipura, Anahata, etc. And see a correlation. So when people started combining one science along with another, then this developed. So these are interdisciplinary uh, developments, which are good, which have to be tried, which have to be seen. Where this question arose from was uh, from the Gayatri Ashram in Haridwar, which gives an entire diagram of a human form and all the chakras and it says that when you chant the Gayatri Mantra how various chakras are affected with various swaras. Yeah, this so, is true but you see th- th- there are complications about this. Now people have started singing the mantras in modern ragas. In ancient times this was not allowed. Uh, in ancient times those who sung the, the Vedic mantras they did it only either like Pavakana Saraswati in three swaras or in Samgan, seven swaras. But they did not sing it in uh, local tunes. You see, like Now, th- this was not permitted. And I think this is a very unhealthy development. We can use uh, music to cure ourselves, to do whatever, but we should not mix it with singing of mantras. Mantras have only to be chanted either according to the tradition of Rigveda, Samveda, Yajurveda, Atharvaveda, either according to that particular system. They have to be chanted or sung according to Samveda, nothing else, not according to modern ragas.
this is a this is a very serious problem and i think great musicians have fallen into this trap singing of mantras was forbidden so that the purity and the effect and the sanctity of uh vaidik swara prayoga and vaidik samgan is preserved as separate the two are not mixed if you could please demonstrate the difference between uh dhruva gaan and a samgan the the dhruva the ancient dhruva gaans they were not sung in the vedic system the singing of the ancient dhruvas was in the local tunes whatever were the local tunes of that time the you know the music that prevailed 2000 uh, prevailed 5000 years ago at the time of vedic yajnas being performed whatever was the laukik music or the worldly music or the music of common people the dhruvas were sung in that music they were not sung in samgan or they were not sung in the three udatt anudatt swarit you see that is why the singing of the dhruva or the geetakas was different from the chanting of the mantras so the vaidik yajna was done according to the system of vaidik yajna by you know by the priests brahma and uh, agnihotra and others they were done by them and the chanting was done according to the prescriptions including the samagan ha ha you know like samagan or the or the three tones this was done only for the purpose of yagya but when yagya stopped and in between the dhruvas were sung and the dancing was done and the uh, and veenas were played and music was performed then that was performed in the contemporary music that is quite clear i cannot recreate the dhruva gaan of 5000 years ago because it has not been preserved the the sam gaan has been preserved the uh, rig part has been preserved that is something that's a great miracle that india performed that it preserved it exactly as it is and that is why they said that others should not mix this with their local music and now in india we don't understand this distinction that's why we are mixing singing gayatri which is a mantra so gayatri has to be performed and sung only in three tones or in samgan it is not to be sung in film tunes or folk tunes or even ragas but now people sing gayatri in yaman kalyan and bageshwari in this and that which is wrong so uh, thoda sa deviation hai and i'm guessing anand roy ji wanted to ask some more questions but a little deviation uh, perhaps but natya shastra was it ever accessible in the varna system who had access to this was it again was it the brahman samaj or this is uh, 
you know that a valid question at all <laughs> i'll tell you uh, a uh, i'll tell you a kind of a, it is a joke as well as a historical small little thing uh, many years ago i think about 10 years ago uh, our great uh, south indian politician karunanidhi he gave a statement that natya shastra was brahminical so i publicly wrote to him and asked him a question through hindu that does he have any proof that bharat muni who is supposed to have composed natya shastra does he have any proof that bharat muni was a brahmin because he is called a muni and a muni can be a brahmin or a non brahmin or whatever a rishi okay secondly bharat muni is closely associated with performers and he names his hundred sons sons means here disciples who were all performers and most of these performers tradition says belong to shudra varna so why should i not presume that bharat muni was a shudra that he was a learned shudra that he was an actual performer also that he studied the subject that he studied and he knew sanskrit also and therefore he composed a, a let us call it a manual or a shastra for preservation of that art which was being performed by him and his disciples who could have been of different castes so there is no reason to presume that bharat muni was a brahmin absolutely not now another example there is another great text in the field of performing art and it was composed by matang muni the text is called brihad deshi now this word matang more often than not always denotes a shudra varna in indian text matangas are either people living in forests they are varna bahiya they are by our modern standards uh, you know uh, what should we call the oppressed classes etc so matang muni was certainly not a brahmin he was a shudra if you take the word matang as it has its connotation in all other literary texts of india so here again you have another example now this whole thing that various texts were composed by brahmins only is not true manusmriti was composed let us say by manu but manu was a raja king a kshatriya he was not a brahmin now yagyavalk was again a muni so we don't know if he was a brahmin <laughs> i mean we we forget a very simple fact that once you become a muni or a rishi or a sanyasi then from whatever caste you come that has no meaning or connection it is a category of a person who has achieved a certain intellectual status intellectual and spiritual status 
Rishi and Muni, and there are various categories of Rishi and Munis, you know, Devarshi and Brahmarshi and this and that, which are not according to Varana or caste, but which are according to spiritual or academic upliftment. Sir, I would like to know the, the difference between the iconic Greek iconic worship and yeah. uh, and Indian Indian idol worship, and and their. Uh, uh, there's a connotation of a personal God uh, in Christianity also. So how does that uh, differ from what we believe as a uh, Sagun worship? No, Christianity is different from the Greeks, please. Let us be very clear about uh, this. Uh, the Christians destroyed the Greek uh, gods and goddesses and the temples and the whole culture. The Christians were against uh, Zeus and Apollon and uh, all other gods, uh, Athena, and uh, they they destroyed their temples. They thought that was uh, that was wrong. It was it was a house of devil. So uh, please don't associate the Greek Olympic world or the even more ancient world of uh, Titans or Titans uh, Greek world with the Christian world. Now coming to your question, because Murti Puja was done by the Greeks and uh, we have most ancient uh, temples in Greece, much more ancient than even in India. Now Murti Puja was part of the Greek system and it was coexisting with their system of sacrifice. Now the Greek system of sacrifice had an exact parallel with the Hindu or the Sanatan system of sacrifice also. It was believed both by the uh, by the Yajna Kartas in India that the gods the Devatas they live in the sky, Divi. That is why they are Devatas. They live in the... Similarly, the Greeks believed that the gods lived in the skies. And sacrifice had to be presented to them in the skies. They will not come down to take the sacrifice, but the sacrifice has to travel to them. So in both the cultures, it was through fire, Agni, that the sacrifice was made to reach the gods. So the Greeks also gave their offering into the fire and the smoke of the fire took the sacrifice to the gods. To whichever god you made the sacrifice, whether you made it to Zeus or to Apollo or the goddess Hera or the goddess Athena, or Dimitra, but it was given through fire. Fire was the messenger in Greece. And similarly, in the Vedic Yajna in India, it was in the Vedic altar that you put the, the whatever you had to send to the gods whether it was somalata, whether it was ghee, whether it was some kind of an animal, whatever. 
so it was through now in greece also both the systems emerged somehow somewhere the in the greek temples when regular temple worship started then sacrifices were made to the gods not inside the temple but at the doorstep of the temple it is there that the animal was kept uh, was put into fire and the smoke took it to the gods so there are great parallels and there are various theories about it some people even think that greeks originally migrated from the sindhu valley to what is now called greeks you see they, there are there are certain references in bodhain shop sutra about it that amavasu he was he went west and he went as far as aratta beyond paras beyond uh, persia so beyond persia you have greece so that is one reference we have and then we have all these similarities so i think as research and archaeological evidence would emerge more and more we will be able to see these connections but there is a great parallel between emergence of murti puja in greece and emergence of murti puja in india i have a, another question but sir um the eroticism in indian temples depicted in indian temples yeah i recently read that nehru in discovery of india uh, wrote that he was abhorred by the images uh, on khajuraho <laughs> i i felt i was literally shocked on reading that uh, that this is the opinion of the first prime minister but there is a whole lot of uh, just ask you sorry. for my clarification nehru's was appalled or gandhi was appalled or both were appalled i i read nehru uh, wrote that and nehru wrote what please could you repeat that he was abhorred um, you know imagining or seeing the images of uh, erotic sculptures outside temples even nehru was appalled not only gandhi we have heard about gandhi that gandhi was appalled but even nehru well i am not surprised and i am very happy that you have given me this information of course i had known that gandhi uh, was appalled but even nehru so that goes on to prove my point that since 19th century uh christianity made horrible inroads into the hindu mind and it created so many distortions and one of the distortions uh that it created one of the most serious distortions that it created was that it made us feel guilty about sexuality uh just as uh, it made christians feel guilty about sexuality you know right in the first chapter of the bible you have uh, uh you have this castigation of sexuality as fall that is when adam and eve ate the apple against the forbidden Uh, against the injunction 
of God that they should not eat that forbidden fruit. So as soon as they ate the forbidden fruit, they felt a great deep sexual desire and they indulged in intercourse and that was the first sin. So this approach to sexuality as sin uh, has been part of the Christian tradition right from the beginning. Uh, in fact, Judaic tradition, but it was promoted by Christians and brought to India. And uh, it is ever since that the Anglophonic classes in India and the classes who from India went then to England for their education like Gandhi and Nehru. So they all came back with this, uh, with this kind of a syndrome, Victorian syndrome. So I'm not surprised if uh, these people were appalled. I'm sure uh, Lokman Tilak would not have been appalled had he gone to Khajuraho. And uh, anybody who had read the Kama Shastra would not have been appalled. It's only those people who did not read our texts who would get appalled. Otherwise, Dharma, Artha, Kama and Moksha, they are the four Purusharthas or the objectives of human life, aims of human life. And sexuality is one of the aims. It is something absolutely natural and it is something to be enjoyed as well. It has the function of procreation, which is essential for uh, preserving the human race and for flowering of the human race. And procreating is essential so that you can be free of your debt to gods and to uh, your parents and gurus so that you can create good citizens and dharmic people. And at the same time, this procreation is enjoyable because it is karma. So it is not uh, something which the Victorians thought of. And uh, Gandhi and Nehru were certainly very Victorian people. And I think uh, a lot of present day Hindus have to resolve this problem. Unfortunately, uh, this kind of got uh, assimilated into India in the 19th century. Dayanand Saraswati was a victim of this syndrome as well. So he forbade that students should uh, he forbade that students should not read uh, Kalidas. Because Kalidas has described the uh, the Shingara Leela of of uh, Shiva and Parvati, and uh, Arya Samaji is uh, constantly denounce Natya Shastra, theater, drama, Puranas, stories. You see, they constantly denounce them as as perversions or as things which were developed as a distortion of the true message of the Vedas. And they even reduced uh, all the Vedic gods to a Christian kind of an image. When Dayanand Saraswati translated uh, the Vedas, then into Hindi, he would translate Indra as Parampita Parmeshwar. 
he would translate uh, every god saraswati as parampita parmeshwar or light or this or that so the whole image the shape the body was taken away and parampita parmeshwar was brought in now you know parampita parmeshwar is a christian concept the god in heaven patera the father patera that is a christian concept the father the son and the holy ghost these are all christian concepts and they were all emerged into one by dayanand saraswati as the vedic ultimate vedic god so i think these were the great inroads of christianity which came in and which continue in india today that is why we are not able to take the whole subject of sexuality in a normal manner india neither believes in sexual liberty it neither believes in permissiveness which is transgressing social norms orders it neither believes in suppression or guilt it believes a proper enjoyment of sexuality and i think we have to come back to that balance through a study of our shastras through the study of our literature you see our kavyas our ramayana mahabharat puranas and all the complicated ideas that are there in it and it is here that a lot of ancient greek stories would help us also because they talk about the power of creativeness and procreativeness in the same indo european manner as our texts do so these are deep philosophical uh, subjects which we have to explore now i have a question which is related to both both the things that you said one was about the victorian values coming into our art and culture i believe or also literature you spoke about i have observed this in literature for a very long time because when i read the latin american poets it yeah. was refreshing to read their poetry because that is completely unaffected by the victorian values yeah our indian literature abhi dekha jaye to 19th century ke baad se kuch bhi aisa wholesome nahi aaya hai either it is too emotional uh, too emotional or it is too social or it is too pragmatic there is nothing which is kind of integral in nature where a person uses the intellect as well as the heart i mean i don't know how to put it but we have also been so that i feel we have been fragmented we have been uh, you know kuch hissa hai apna bada essential jo humne kaat ke alag kar diya hai mujhe aisa lagta hai could you say something more about this yeah you are right you see the british tradition don't forget that the anglican church was heavily protestant and the protestants in opposing the catholics also opposed a lot of the pre christian heritage which the catholics had in other words the whole idea of romance worship of woman as the paragon of beauty so if you if you read medieval uh, italian poetry then you have the great poet dante who worships beatrice now that tradition is actually 
a kind of a Christian mysticism that comes from pre-Christian times, but which was preserved in the Mediterranean. Catholic had some idea of it and some arms of Catholicism or let us say some sampradayas of Catholics, they preserved it. Although on the whole Christianity thought of uh, sexuality as sin, but they thought that if you platonize it, if you elevate it, then it becomes acceptable. But that was missing in the Anglican British tradition. That's why in English poetry, you don't have those things. Or even in American poetry, you don't have. So you have people like T.S. Eliot who become very, uh, who become very uh, holy or who become very, uh, who become only spiritual. Even though they may go to Bhidharanya Kopanishad, but they would never go to Kamshastra. <laughs> so that is the problem. Whereas the Latin tradition, they inherited the whole Catholic uh, heritage. They inherited that, uh, that feeling and romanticism, which was not uh, ethereal romanticism, but which was very fleshy romanticism. And therefore your experience with the Latin poets. Like to ask a few more questions. Um, yes. I read this interesting uh, book. I have it in my shelf by Francis Goiter. Uh, he had mentioned that Arya Samaj, like you said, sir, uh, how it uh, basically, Dayananda Saraswati basically translated that all father, Christian God as to our own thing and how it got assimilated. He said that Arya Samaj is basically, I quote, uh, Christianity in Hindu garb. Uh, I would like to know your, uh, if uh, he's absolutely correct or if there's anything more or if there's any role of Christian missionary uh, underhand in the Arya Samaj. And also, if you can, uh, could you please uh, show a demo of what the Gayatri Mantram would have originally sounded like? Is it totally lost? Or? Okay. Now, first about Gayatri, because that is more in connection with my talk. You see, Gayatri is a mantra and it is also a chanda or a certain a prosodic meter. But the mantras, as I said, they would be either sung in Samagan, the seven note Samagan, or they would be recited in the three tones. You see the three tones of Udatta, Anudatta and Swarit. So all mantras were recited or they were done in Samagam. Whether it is Gayatri or it is any other mantra. So you can hear recordings of various uh, Samagam or other mantras and you will get a very good picture. It is not only Gayatri but all the mantras are recited in uh, these three Three tones or in Samgan, right? Now, coming to the <laughs> Arya Samaj thing, I would not go to the extent uh, to saying that uh, Christian it was a Christian plot or something like that. 
I have great respect for Swami Dayanand Saraswati. He was a great uh, nationalist. He was a great reformer. He was a uh, he was a Hindu par excellence, and uh, he was somebody who wanted to uh, confront and oppose totally the Christian missionaries, and he wanted India to be rid of. all kinds of um, all kinds of deceit and all kind of uh, uh, chicanery and various other social evils and lack of education of women so uh, he did sterling work for it and he is one of the great uh, heroes of 19th century in fact uh, he is the first nationalist who wanted india to be independent however he thought for whatever reasons that worship of icon is not correct and so he said that vedic yagya must be revised and he revived that in order to revive that and make it uh, accessible to people he also broke down the restrictions of reciting mantras according to tradition according to a special education at the same time he also rejected the idea of doing yagya in the very old elaborate way he said a simple yagya can be done by an individual now yagyas were done in simply in the vedic time also because just as you do your normal puja today similarly your uh, daily yagya was done by the individual grihastha by the fire which he had in his own home so he wanted to revive that he revived that and he did sterling work in it and he thought that a lot of things which were being uh, sold in the name of hinduism and particularly in the name of uh, visiting the temples and restrictions on various activities of the people regarding temple entry etc were wrong and so he was a great reformer and he propounded a return to the simple vedic yagya see this is what he now he simplified it he simplified it to such an extent that a lot of uh, things became uh, in his eyes wrong so development of murti puja development of the temple the economy of the temple the culture of the temples the social life of the temples the arts in the temples temples are as a repository of great scholars and artists and temples as nodal centers which distrib- which distributed learning to rest of the people to the rest of the city all this he overlooked so he was a missionary he was reviving something good but he neglected a huge amount of later development of hinduism 
So present day Hinduism cannot survive without temple worship. And unfortunately, the present day Arya Samajis have become very fanatic. They insist that uh, the Vedas are word of God just as Bible is the word of God or just as Quran is the word of God. Now, they, they make this mistake because our tradition does call the Vedas as apaurusheya. That is that they are not created by a human being. But it is also the Indian belief that whatever is created by a poet, whether it is a work of art or work of sculpture or a painting, is all done as part of a divine blessing. It is Vidya or Saraswati. It is divine, which is visiting you and making you do it. So Vedas are Apaurusheya in the sense that there is a divine inspiration to the Rishi who speaks out the mantra. But the mantras have been spoken by the Rishis. So there is nothing so different about Vedas or Vedic mantras from the utterances of Kalidas or utterances of Valmiki or utterances of other poets because all that is a divine visitation. All that is Aparusheya. And Arisamajis should not go on insisting that Vedas alone are Aparusheya, Vedas alone are Pramana, Vedas alone are to be followed, nothing else is to be followed. I think this is where they tend to be divisive. And this is where uh, they tend to copy uh, Christians and Muslims. And in this respect, to my mind, they make a mistake. They become exclusivist. So the Hindu tradition is not exclusivist, it is an inclusive tradition. The parallels between Greek and Indian culture, I find that very interesting myself because even I love Greek mythology. And, okay, yes. I'm not sure if mythology is the correct word, but the... Yes, ancient, uh, Greece, ancient Greece is a matter of great attraction to Indians and Hindus. Hindus in particular, modern Indians and modern Hindus, because uh, they are both Indo-European culture. They are both cultures which have immense parallels. And there are several values which are almost identical or very similar. Now, if you want a more detailed understanding of this, then you can read my book, Dramatic Concepts, Greek and Indian. Uh, you can see some of my videos on my channel, uh, YouTube channel. I have several videos there on this subject. And uh, then you will get a detailed account that there were several values which were uh, identical, common, like uh, the idea of pure and impure. Shuchi and Ashaucha. Something pure is uh, something which has power and potency and something which is impure travels towards death. 
So this whole concept of dividing purity and impurity. So your money can be impure, your money can be pure, your mind can be pure and mind can. So this whole concept dividing things between pure and impure, shauch and ashauch, and the Greek word for there is miasma and catharsis. They have exact words for this. And the exact uh, miasma means impurity. Catharsis means cleaned, pure. So they divide the world into this. Then there are many other parallels like uh, what we have, Atithi Devo Bhava, then they have the concept of Xenia. And they have several other things, power of word, you know, like power of word or Orchos. And so if you read my book, you will see a large number of uh, parallels, which ancient Greeks, Homeric Greeks, and even a fifth century Greeks had in their lives. The present day Greece is a very different world. It's a mixture of some little bit of ancient world and modern Christianity. But they still preserve a lot of their ancient values, I think. And that is why uh, Indians normally like Greek culture immensely. Wanted to add on one point, sir. I'm sorry, it's taking your time. About uh, the Greek and Indian parallel, you said about the uh, worship of feminine as well. I would like to add, and like you said, uh, there is a small movement in Greece, sir, where they are trying to uh, revive their old Hellenic culture. They call it Hellenism, and they too are fighting for the ownership of their Athena, Parthenos, just like how we fought for Ram Mandir. I thought it was an interesting. Similarity, which I you know. Yes, it is. It is true. You see, hundred years ago, uh, in the nineteenth century, there used to be a church uh, on the top, and a church in the precincts of the temple of Athena. So that was removed without any opposition or. Although Greece is a Christian nation, but they remove church. And wherever they want to restore uh, their ancient temples, there is no debate in public that a church should be removed. Because uh, just as uh, Babar desecrated the Ram Mandir and made a mosque, similarly in the 3rd century, uh, the Greeks, when they were invaded by Christians, uh, the mainland Greeks were invaded by uh, Eastern Christians from what is now Turkey. Then they destroyed a lot of ancient temples and they made churches over them or they engraved crosses on them. If you visit the museums, it's all very obvious and clear. But in Greece, there is no debate about this. In Greece, they want to clear all that and restore their ancient temples. They have been doing it for a hundred years. It's only in India because Nehru's perverted policy of secularism that we have this problem. That uh, hundreds and hundreds of Hindu temples which were occupied by uh, Islamic invaders and converted into mosques they are not being restored to their originals. But the Greeks don't have that problem at all. 
it's it's a basically a, a problem between islam and other ways of thinking it is not a problem with the uh, christian greeks the christian greeks are very proud of their pre-christian past and they don't want to suppress it they they consider that as their heritage whereas if you go to turkey which is now muslim they do not consider their ancient greek past as their past they consider that as something to be forgotten so this is a big difference of uh, mentality and perception 